This is the podcast of Theophilus Church. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com. Well, welcome. It's good to see everyone uh, this evening. So as a reminder, tonight is uh, we will have a meal after the gathering, as is customary for us. Um, so there will be a meal this week, and there will be potluck Sunday next week. So plan on bringing something. Actually, yeah, is it pot- No, no, no. No, there will be a meal next week, but it's not potluck. So uh, come next week and share in a meal, and then the following week will be potluck Sunday. I want to draw your attention to two quick announcements, um, and then we're going to do a prayer, and then we'll get into the text this evening. Out there in the foyer, you're going to notice two new handy-dandy flyers. Um, One of them is a class that Bill Jastrom will be running. It's uh, starting up in the next couple weeks. Tuesday, October 1st is when the class starts, uh, and it's about living a spiritual lifestyle. Bill has been a pastor for many, many years and does these classes each quarter uh, for us, and so this, this semester is that topic. And so if you want some more information on that, please go see the flyer and Bill in the foyer after the gathering, and he can give you some more uh, information on that. Second, uh, Stuart Egan is leading a theology and film gathering each month this uh, until the end of the year. And so there's a flyer out there that has four different screenings that are going to happen um, where he will lead them and, and there will be a discussion on the films afterwards. The first one is going to be this Saturday, and it's actually probably the favorite, my favorite film of this year, which is Look and See. It's a portrait of the life of Wendell Berry. Um, who is an amazing poet, uh, an agrarian uh, leader who is getting up there in age, uh, but lives over there in, uh, where is it, Kansas, Kentucky, something over there. Anyways, um, so go and watch that and together as a community and have dialogue with Stuart. Is Stuart in here? He's up there with the kids. He will be out there in the entryway for more information on on that if you're interested as well. Or come talk to me if you don't know who Stuart is and you would like some more information on that. Okay, last uh, last announcement. We've had a couple in our church who has been here for several years now and are now moving over to Boise, Idaho for important lawyer duties and all that fun stuff. Christian and Haley Moat. Christian just got a, a new job. He's a lawyer, um, and his new job is at a pros- as a prosecutor in Boise, and uh, he wants to get out of his office job here in Portland. So, But you guys have been just such a gift to this community. You will be missed tremendously. God is with you. We pray that you find a rich community that you can bless like you've blessed ours. Um, and if you come to Portland and you don't visit, I will slap you, okay? Um, <laughs> But to send them off, this is their last Sunday, they move uh, this week, we're going to just send them off with a covering of prayer. So if you're around Christian and Haley, if you could put your hands on them or extend a hand to them, let's send them off. Jesus, sometimes we take for granted the gift of community and, and people and just the rhythm of being involved in each other's lives and it's at moments like these that um, it reminds us to not take that for granted and what a gift everybody in this space is. Thank you for the gift uh, of our time with Christian and Haley. 
Lord, we pray that as they go on to this new chapter, this new season, closer to family, with new job, that God, that they find you around every corner in unique ways. And God, that their life is just blessed, I mean, beyond measure. We pray for the people that come in their path, that they would be blessed the way that we have been blessed through them. Thank you for this time with them. Send them off well. Be with them. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please return quickly. Okay, so tonight um, we are going to continue the sermon series that we've been doing through the Apostles' Creed. We're going to say the Apostles' Creed here together in just a moment. Um, But we're going to be preaching through, today's topic is on the topic of resurrection. Um, It was supposed to be two weeks ago, but it ended up being a journey through what this fall is going to look like, and we didn't get to the topic. So we're going to get to resurrection tonight. Every time I talk about a topic of magnitude, um, I get some angst. And those who know me well, like I, that's what I deal with. I'm like, so this song was like really good for me. I'm sitting up here, you know, fear can go to hell. Yes, please. Um, I believe that tonight in this, in this passage that we get to immerse ourselves in the story of resurrection once again, and that the Spirit has something for us this evening. We're going to be talking about resurrection through... Uh, a passage that isn't typically used to talk about this, and it's the passage of the road to Emmaus, and I'll unpack it here in just a minute. Before we get into that, would you please stand with me while we read the passage and say the Apostles' Creed together? We're going to start with the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please remain standing for reading out of Luke 24, starting in verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us 
that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish are you and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within while, we talked with us, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I'm going to start the sermon by making a pretty provocative statement, okay? I'm going to start by saying the most controversial flower in the whole world is a dandelion. Before you get up and walk out the door angry, um, think about this. Have you ever, have you ever, like inspected a dandelion. I was, I have a lot of them these days in my front yard, right? And the other day I walked, I walked out and there's different classes of dandelions. There's like ones that have lost like half of their little fluff. And occasionally you're going to find that dandelion with the perfect yellow flower and the perfect whole ball, right? Now, if you were to get down and you were to never, just imagine with me for just a second that you had never experienced a dandelion a day in your life, and you walked across this perfectly, like, homogenous field of green grass, and out of the center was this puffy ball of flowerness, and in the morning... It had no color to it, but then as soon as the sun came out, this perfectly yellow, beautiful little thing opened up and then closed back up. If you had no experience with the dandelion and you were into flowers, I think that you would probably bend down, look at this thing, and be in awe of this really peculiar flower. Well, If you've ever observed a child, a child is enamored with the wonders of a dandelion. Who here has had an experience as a child with a dandelion, right? You run out your front yard, you see all these flowers, these peculiar flowers springing up in your front lawn, and as a child, you just cannot wait to grab that dandelion, to pick it, and to blow it and watch those things just go flying. It's pure joy to a child. 
But when you get older and wiser and you have a really strategic plan for how your space should look, dandelions are no longer magical. They're invasive. They invade your space. So when you're a child, you run out the front door and you pick the dandelion and you blow it and you stand in awe of the seeds going flying through the air. And as an adult, you watch your children go out and grab the dandelion and blow it and you go, no! As they scatter throughout. Dandelions can teach us, I think, about resurrection. In fact, I think a dandelion is a perfect metaphor or container for how we can understand resurrection. But in order to enter into the story of resurrection, I think we need to have a little bit of a twist of perspective. Just like looking at a dandelion from one vantage point as a child with a spirit of playfulness, a dandelion is pure magic. And as an adult, when you have expectations and ideas of how this should fit into your space, it is a pure nuisance. So the story of resurrection can either be dead and lifeless, or it can be filled with wonder and meaning. So the journey tonight is going to be how can we enter into the story of resurrection from a childlike perspective with eyes and ears to see how the story of resurrection can actually impact us in really profound, life-changing ways. I grew up in the church, probably like most in here. The story of resurrection served one end for me. It had one purpose. It, was, it served the purpose of proving for me, in my heart, whether or not Jesus was God. Every year, one time a year, I would hear the Easter story. We'd come to church on Easter Sunday. The pastor would talk about about Jesus' raising from the dead. And at that moment, I have to make this cognitive decision. Do I believe that historical event happened or did I not? Well, as a young child, I made the the conscious decision, though this exists in the realm of mystery, I am going to decide that resurrection happened. So when I made that decision, for me, it was a decision that saying, I believe this event happened, therefore I believe Jesus is God. Okay, resurrection has served its purpose. It has led me to cognitively believe that Jesus was God and therefore it has run its course. It has done its job. Moving on, let's talk about more interesting things. Well, in the early church, resurrection was not just this cool idea to prove God exists. It actually is the centerpiece, the focal point, the crescendo of Christian worship. Week in and week out, over and over and over again, the community of faith would gather together to partake in the Eucharist, not to celebrate the death of Jesus, but to proclaim he is alive. 
it changed everything for them. Their lives were transformed and morphed by this idea of resurrection. I want to actually describe a little bit just to to set our minds around just how the resurrection transformed the early church's lives. For an early Christian, it was illegal in like in Roman Empire for them to own property. Instead of decrying the oppression that they experienced as a community, the early church then decided to go to the one space that they could have ownership of, and that was the space of their tombs, the catacombs. So they would migrate from the city center where they would live outside of the city walls to where their people were buried around the bones of their ancestors, and they would worship there in that space. And they called these gatherings love feasts. They would gather around to celebrate the joyful participation in the, resurrection Christ, the resurrected Christ. It was a feast where they would, would gather together and it would just transform, the, it, they would well up with joy and participate in that together. Well, rumors began to spread throughout, especially Rome, that these feasts were not just like, they were peculiar to say the least. This idea of love feasts gave the Roman uh, society this, this um, perspective on, on Christian gatherings as these, uh, these orgies, basically where people would go into these peculiar spaces and enact things that were not kosher, not cool, right? Well, to take it a step further, Christians, the focal point of their gatherings was the Eucharist, where they would eat body and blood. So it became a rumor throughout the Roman Empire that not only were there these, um, you know, sensual gatherings, but the people would gather to actually eat in cannibalistic form body and blood. But not just any body and blood. Because the resurrected Christ impacted the way in which they saw the world, and they believed that participating in the life that was the resurrected Christ, in Roman society, unwanted children that were, that were born, primarily women, young women because they were more of a nuisance to the household than they were, uh, or a liability than they were an asset, would be left outside at night to die. Totally acceptable form of leaving your children. The church, being compelled by this idea of resurrection, that God is a God of life and hope, would go out at night and they would collect these young women. They called them baby hunts. These young girls and these young boys that were unwanted from society. They'd bring them into their household and they'd raise them as their own. So as these babies were being collected and raised in these Christian households, reputation would circulate among the Romans that this body and blood that they would eat was little children that they would wrap up in the Eucharist and consume them. And amidst all of this misunderstanding, amidst all of these reputations that tainted 
the way in which these Christians were viewed in society. They continued to meet under the banner of hope and joy and celebration. If you go into the catacombs today, you will see littered on the tomb walls two primary symbols. There's a fish and there's an anchor. The anchor is a symbol representative of Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. It says, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope we have before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. They would put anchors on their tombs to remind themselves that Jesus, the resurrected Lord, was an anchor of hope for them that they can hold on to. And then they put a fish famously known as the ichthus. The ichthus was a reminder of three things. It was a reminder that Jonah got swallowed in the belly of the fish. And then three days later, God vomited him out onto the shore. And just like Jonah got swallowed up, so the resurrected Jesus had been swallowed by the tomb, but he was alive. And that same Jesus took the fish and divided it and gave it to his disciples and fed them. And he called Simon and the other fishermen to follow him. The fish is a symbol of hope in the resurrection, resurrected Jesus. And it became the way in which the early church would orient themselves around the person of Christ. So why the heck the story of, what is this story of Emmaus, this journey, this Emmaus Road journey? I find this story really interesting. Here you have Jesus raised from the dead, and he's walking along this journey of two guys in the middle of tremendous grief. These guys are talking, their faces downcast. They're displaying clear signs of remorse over what had just happened. And Jesus patiently walks alongside them and engages in dialogue with them about the crucifixion of Christ. And they're actually saying, are you buried under a rock? Where have you been? Why have you not heard about these horrors that happened to Jesus? And Jesus walks along and quotes scripture to them. He says, haven't you heard? And they're scratching their head. They still don't get it. And my favorite part of the story is comes toward the end. They get to their home and the scripture says, Jesus was intent on just walking on. He was continuing his journey. 
And yet the story takes a shift when these two men said to Jesus, don't continue on, come into our space, take your shoes off, rest for a second. Jesus comes into their house and it is in the process of breaking bread with these disciples. It is the process of breaking bread with these two men that their eyes were open and they see Jesus for who he is. Guys, I think that the Emmaus Road is our story. Oh, man. Give me a second, please. This morning, I was uh, in my kitchen, and I walked out, and the rain was falling, and I go, I'm sitting there, and I'm in a bad mood, and I go, God, why the rain? Why is it raining? It's glooming. It's terrible. And while I'm watching the rain fall, I'm filling up my glass with water, and I'm taking a drink. Oh, yeah. That tastes really good. The irony that I will complain about the provision of God in my life is something that we live with in a day in and day out basis. The story of Emmaus is the story of a God or of Jesus, the resurrected Christ who journeys along two people who don't have the eyes to see or the ears to hear who Jesus is, where he's going, or what he is up to. Until they make a decision to invite him into their space, to open up their home, to pour their self out onto him. And it is in that process of inviting him into this space that their eyes are changed and they see him for who he truly is. The story of Emmaus is the story of discipleship. It's of people walking alongside Christ and discovering who he is in the process of living something out. We have so many opportunities in life to live a life that is focused on hope and joy and the truth of resurrection, that the God of the universe who created heaven and earth rose again from the, he came and he rose again from the dead and he lives among us and he empowers us to be that those vessels of hope and life in the communities that we live in by breaking bread with people, sharing hope with those around us. (sighs) 
For a long time, um, I've really been impressed or I've felt compelled to lead this community in a way where it's shaped by hope instead of anxiety and, um, yeah, instead of anxiety. And I obviously, clearly, I mean, this is not new. Like, I deal with anxiety. It's, it's a thing uh, for me. And I wish it wasn't, but it is. Um, sometimes what heightens my anxiety is this internal push and pull. That if we push too hard to be a community that is shaped by hope and resurrection and life, then will that marginalize the people in this space that have questions and doubts and concerns. And so in that spirit, internally, you do this push and pull. We have to be a people of hope, but not too hopeful because that becomes intimidating or it marginalizes those who have questions. And so then you come over here and it's like, well, we got to show that we can doubt too and we can ask thoughtful questions. But if we do that, then we surrender to despair. And we go back and forth and back and forth. And I become very conflicted. I was listening to a sermon by this guy, Leslie Newbegin, who spent most of his, he's a British guy who spent most of his, his life in, in India. And he talks about how faith and doubt are interconnected. And how doubt is actually a really, it's an unavoidable and critical part of our faith. And yet, doubt has to stem from belief. There is an order to the relationship between faith and doubt. You cannot doubt something that you don't believe in. You have to first believe in something in order to doubt it. And yet, we live in a time and a place that has, in a culture, that has elevated doubt to the primary seat. And this is the origins of our spirit of cynicism, right? We doubt before we believe. The invitation to participate in the resurrection is an invitation to participate in hope. We serve a resurrected Lord who is full of reasons to have hope and joy. That does not mean then that we cannot be a community who doubts. We would lack tremendous self-awareness if we believed that we could not doubt. But our doubts come from a place of hope and joy in the resurrected Lord. That is what forms us and then we can doubt from that space and walk alongside each other in that space. That is what, to me, this is like the wrapping up, but the return to the whole dandelion metaphor, right? We, I, like to have a starting point where 
my starting point usually is my idea of what the yard should look like. And then the dandelion has to fit that model, that vision of what the space is to look like. Let's turn that on its head. And let's allow the Spirit, the resurrected Lord, to come and invade our space, to fill us with joy and hope that comes from the Spirit, and allow Him to reshape the way in which we look at our yards or our space, to change the way in which we perceive the dandelion. And maybe in that space, we could learn to be like a child again and pick it up and blow it and laugh and enjoy it. And that just serves as a metaphor for enjoying one another and life and the world that God has gifted us with. We all know it's a world of death and decay and hardship. We have something to hope in. Jesus is alive. And that should shape us from the inside out. Once again, one of these days... I will stop saying thank you for being patient with me as I work my stuff out in front of you uh, and with you, actually. It's not in front of you, it's with you. So thank you um, for that. It's a joy to be a part of this community who provides that space. You've been listening to the podcast of Theophilus Church. We hope you've been inspired and challenged by what you've heard. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com.